Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good afternoon. My name's Tamsi Thompson. I have the privilege to be the director for the London Festival of Architecture. Um, this morning we had a really interesting and sometimes quite lively debate. Um, for those who weren't able to join us, we heard from Claire about um, universities engaging with identity, the destruction of identity through unsustainable practices. We, she discussed the role of um, heritage and the impact of universities on those heritage. Um, and the right to the city and the Fevre mentioned, of course. Maya talked about antagonised identities. She gave us examples of the well houses in Tel Aviv and how the rewriting of um, history um, through the architectural context. Then we heard from Verity on the role of the artist in regeneration, talked through ideas of the borough artist, the borough architect and the borough planner, um, and a phrase which I wrote down um, of, I'm going to do art to you, which I think was my... <laughs> One of my takeaways. And, and then finally, we heard about Cyprus and the buffer zone and the emotional impact of uh, the architecture and the architectural surroundings on us. So a really lively discussion, which I hope we'll continue um, now this afternoon with our second panel, um, who I'm going to just introduce Shumi, who's our, our chair uh, for this afternoon, and she will introduce the panel. Thank you. Thanks, Tamsi, for the introduction and to LFA for um, having us all here. Obviously, the theme of um, LFA and the theme of the talk today is to talk about identity and the production of identity in the urban context. So I have a couple of minutes to kind of wax on about this a bit. Um, I think identity... <clears throat> you might end up being sick of it at the end of June because so many different events are going to be talking about identity, but it's because it is you know, pretty much um, a crucial concept at the core of existence that sounds kind of very philosophical or existential I think I, I, I was thinking of breaking it down into different ways of thinking about identity I mean the most immediate let's say waking up and getting dressed in the morning and putting on clothes um, is to do with an aesthetic identity it's to do with how you present yourself to the world and how you would like to be perceived um, so I think straight off the bat that's a rather existential set of um, things to be dealing with as soon as you wake up and decide to how you're going to present yourself to the world. There's a sort of individual um, question about ethics and morals and perhaps how you present yourself to the world extends to things to do with gender or race or um, other things that you think define your identity. Um, Identity in terms of commercial or commodity concerns is something else that I think we can all be quite familiar with if you think about a brand identity, for example. What is it that defines that? Is it a particular mood or an image or a colour or a form or a certain set of aspirations or ideals that are somehow embedded into this thing that we call identity? And perhaps if we're thinking about it in the context of LFA and architecture and spatial um, concerns, there's national and societal level questions that we need to ask ourselves too. What is it that constitutes Britain's identity has obviously been a question that we've been... Um, breaking down um, and breaking down over over the last two years. Um, and that also contains with it, within it societal values, so things to do with the ethics and morals that make up our identity as a nation or as a city, but also um, slightly smaller scale social identities, perhaps things to do with what constitutes a vernacular, what constitutes a material identity, or um, things that are more 
phenomenological in terms of what we experience um, as human beings. So all of these things fit into questions of identity and the three speakers that we have today um, are going to give us different takes on those. Um, but I suppose identity is something that's structured by lots of different factors, by ourselves and by other forces um, of power and principle and place. And, and through identity, I suppose, we try to synthesize what we might call meaning. So it is kind of philosophical and, um, and existential. But this afternoon, luckily, we're thinking about the creation of identity rather than its erosion or destruction. Um, so I'll just race through very briefly who we've got speaking um, to us. We have Emily G, first of all, um, who's from Historic England. Um, we unfortunately don't have with us Adam Greenfield. Um, he uh, wasn't able to present today, but just to give you a shout, uh, give him a shout out in, in his absence. His book Radical Technologies is 50% off on Verso today. Um, <laughs> Uh, Morag Myerskoff is with us, uh, and she's an incredibly prolific designer um, who I'll tell you a bit more about uh, when she speaks. And last but not least, Mustafa Shahabuddin. Am I saying this right? Um, he's a principal at KPF. He'll be talking much more about the um, building and urban scale. So, um, tiny bits of housekeeping. If you could put your phones on silent, please, um, or off, um, that would be great for our speakers. Um, we have three quite shortish, ten-minute-ish presentations from our three speakers, and then we'll all reconvene um, and have a chat. And I think that's the thing that I want to flag up most importantly, is that we have about 45 minutes to talk afterwards. We have three speakers um, and all of you. So please could you make notes or mental notes or physical notes, whatever you need to do, if there's anything that you think you want to follow up on with our speakers, because it would be really nice if you would get involved in the discussion in this sort of very discursive space um, at the end of the presentations. So, that's quite enough out of me. <laughs> um, to introduce our first speaker, Emily G, who's um, been with Historic England, formerly known as English Heritage, since 2001. Um, so again, thinking about identity and questions of history and heritage is, is one way to go about it, but I'm sure you'll be telling us lots of different things. Um, Emily's been involved, therefore, in, in um, let's say, the protection of a certain kind of fabric that speaks to an identity of England. Um, but also uh, the 20th century, the, yeah, 20th century network. So looking at more contemporary ideas of what constitutes heritage and what needs to be protected, um, perhaps. So um, Emily also teaches at NYU. So talking about London's architecture to people who aren't from London constitutes perhaps some kind of illustration of an urban identity. Um, and you've also written about. Um, housing and other, other issues to do with women's working spaces and so on. But I guess um, today we'll be hearing more about Historic England and, and what you've been doing with that. So if you would welcome Emily G to the stage, thank you. Thank you, Shumi, very much, and Tamsi for having me here. And you've given me lots of other ideas of other stuff I could have talked about now, but I'm mostly going to be focusing on tall buildings, because I think, I can't remember if that was a brief now, if that's what we suggested, but um, we could be talking about kind of contested heritage issues, which is something I'm going on, rushing on to do after this, um, issues of what we protect or in terms of modernity and modern heritage versus old heritage. Um, but as I say, I'm focusing mostly on kind of height and views and tall buildings and, and how we, how we um, integrate those with a, with a, a time deep and, and diverse heritage in London. 
London's extraordinary blend of geology, topography, and townscape, sat in the natural basin shaped by the Thames, has created many cherished and sweeping views. From the first revelatory panoramas of the 16th century until after the Second World War, London's identity has been as a low city, punctuated by exquisite architectural monuments of church and state. Generations of Londoners, tourists, writers, and artists have admired and painted and etched and penned poetic verses about the ever-changing prospects from the Thames and its banks and the dra dramatic panoramas from the surrounding hills. The identity of the city and its global brand is wrapped up in these views and the landmark buildings that punctuate them. The international significance of these places is also well recognized and formally so in policy. Many of these views are utterly uplifting. They provide breathing space for our souls and they are egalitarian prospects from public parks, public bridges and public Thames paths. Views belong to everyone, Londoners, visitors, rich and poor, and that is one of the reasons that tall buildings, which inevitably cast a broad shadow and a conspicuous profile, have long been quite controversial in our city. I'm just going to give a little bit of historical context. Um, medieval London reached to four-story houses in the main, along major thoroughfares like Cheapside and London Bridge. But apart from the Tower of London, London's pre-fire skyline, and indeed up till around 1800, was dominated by steeples of its many parish churches. The identity of London as a Christian city was a powerful message of these early views. But of course, most Londoners didn't actually see the city themselves from this perspective. This was a really rare and extraordinary perspective, that the panorama at that stage. Instead, the identity of each parish was defined and recognized locally by their own particular spire. So these, these architectural monuments gave an identity to, to each immediate locality. The tower was the earliest London building to have truly dominated its setting. Size, height, and bulk made a strong impression as a piece of military architecture and also reflected the powerful identity of the monarchy. The royal apartments on the upper floors had clear views up and down the river. Today, its distinctive silhouette, which we can read largely as it is there now on the screen, is protected through views management. Although its proximity to the city and its cluster and the developing east end of London means that it still needs to keep its guard. Despite much rebuilding after the Great Fire, London's first Modern Building Act of 1667 meant it remained remarkably low and homogenous all the way through the 18th century. Exceptions were the monument, erected in 1671, and early industrial buildings like this water tower, and you can see those there on the left in that lovely, remarkably Venetian Canaletto view of London um, from the mid-18th century. It was the mid-19th century that really changed the Wren skyline with new building types illustrating the more complex Victorian economy and identity of London, such as Parliament, shown here, of course, and the great railway stations with their grand civic gestures. The builder complained that Parliament's height and loftiness was too overbearing to the Abbey, but there was mostly satisfaction that the highest of London's buildings was a public symbol of authority. It was described by the builder as a stupendous symbol of power and dignity of England. By 1870, London's commercial buildings were just a little lower than Paris and on par with Manhattan. But thereafter, comparisons diverged and London did not join the skyscraper race. This was not technological backwardness. We had precocious ability to build in iron and in steel. 
But the answer was largely down to regulation of how to prevent fire and the spread of fire, and perhaps also ground conditions. A 100-foot height limit, based largely on fire ladder length, was also prompted by this notorious, rather lumpen Queen Anne's mansions you see in this image, to which Queen Victoria famously objected for the obstruction of the view from her bedroom window. And this seems to have been the start of judging buildings based on views. In the early 1920s, architects called for raising the height limit to 120 feet in appropriate places, demonstrating that there were some architectural urges to go much higher, but London resisted this revision of the building heights until 1956. Charles Holden cleverly got round the act by setting back the upper stories of Senate House, which you see on the screen, in the manner of New York skyscrapers. But he knew to build it out of Portland stone to seat to suit London and indeed Bloomsbury's materiality, if not, of course, to match its scale. There was, however, growing concern about the impact of taller and bulkier buildings on historic landmarks and views, particularly that of Unilever House and Faraday House, which you can see in the image on the left from Blackfriars Bridge. The Royal Fine Arts Commission warned that these, quote, disastrously block some of the most famous and beautiful prospects in London. This led to the so-called Gentleman's Agreement of 1937, known as St. Paul's Heights, between the Dean and Chapter of St. Paul's Cathedral and the City of, City of London, City Corporation. Um, this was honored in the post-war City of London plan and remains today, meaning that nothing can be built higher than the balustrade in its own kind of zone around the cathedral. And the 1930s buildings you see here are still very much obvious and quite jarring in that immediate vicinity. And of course, and particularly the views from the, from the, from the bridge, which, which this one is. Um, and of course, there could be little more powerful symbol of the resilience of London and a shared identity of Londonness than the mighty St. Paul's itself. And surely we owe some clear sky to the cathedral, which has sustained the nation's morale for over 300 years. And you'll all be familiar with that iconic image on the right from the war. In the 1950s, London County Council's guidelines encouraged tall buildings that were, quote, carefully sited and well-designed, and that could contribute to the picturesque skyline of London. The creation of the GLC the following year, uh, sorry, the following decade, 1965, coincided with calls for intelligent policy on the siting of high buildings, especially with respect to views. The city cluster started to form for the 1960s, with the NatWest Tower at its focus, and you can see it here under construction in 1974. Today, this carefully curated cluster is wrapped up with the identity of the city as a global financial center, one where new and flagship architectural development rules, but also a place where talent is drawn to the historic atmosphere, the streets and the pubs where deals are often done. And it is this historic character of London that draws the financial talent that we're so proud of to the capital as opposed to other cities. In some ways, the National Heritage List is a marker of each place's identity. Parish by parish across the country, the list makes a record of specialness and what we value and what defines each place. A handful of the very best of London's tall buildings have now been listed, including Centrepoint, which we see here, Trellick Tower, New Zealand House, and others. Some of these, of course, were very controversial when they were planned and built themselves. There are different tests for listing once the dust of time has settled, and we need to consider a building in the round at that stage. It might be that we recommend for listing something that our predecessors objected to several decades before. An example of that is um, the Hyde Park Barracks by Basil Spence, particularly that tall building, which of course was hugely controversial for its impact on, um, Hyde, on Hyde Park itself, but which we recommended for listing a couple of years ago, um, and it, it was turned down by the minister.
Um, that Canaletto view with the water tower I showed earlier um, showed us the prominence of early industrial buildings, and this continued well into the 20th century. The chimneys you see in this 1950s view on the Isle of Dogs are really quite remarkable. If you just focus in for a minute, you can see so many of them. Now, of course, the towers of Docklands in this view replace our identity. Once was, a, once was an industrial, smoky working place, now with a high-tech commercial identity of a different kind of financial power. Inevitably, of course, our city will change over the centuries, perhaps quite dramatically, and we certainly aren't arguing to freeze time. People walk to the top of Lenotre's giant steps here in Greenwich to absorb the splendor of this free view of the capital. But I would argue that the key part of this view is that by Inigo Jones, Hawksmoor, and Wren. Some will argue that the juxtaposition with the towers is exciting, but they could be anywhere in the world, those towers. It's the remarkable time depth, plus the architectural quality in this view, I believe, that speaks to what is London. To help support the Mayor's review of the London View Management Framework, colleagues have been photographing all the protected views in London and comparing them with their images from a decade ago, and I show you two pairs of these here. This shows that we need to be better at managing views, that we need to think beyond a local identity and to consider the capital as a whole. On the left, that um, sort of up above and below pairing, is the view of St Paul's from Primrose Hill. Um, and I would argue that we have the opportunity for enhancement as Euston Station is redeveloped. You see that large black box in the centre there is the, the tower at Euston. Let's right the wrongs of the 1960s and open up that special view of the dome with some great placemaking on the ground, as has happened, of course, at King's Cross and St Pancras, not far away. And the transformation of those places' identities has been really quite remarkable in the last decade. The pair of photographs on the right demonstrates the risk to the other views of St Paul's around London. This is from Blackheath. It shows that the view of the... Of the um, of the, of the dome, of course, which you can see in the middle of each of those pairings, right and left, can be diminished by hefty foreground development and looming towers on either side. So these are both 10 years apart, these pictures, about 2007 and, and 2017. My, my former colleagues um, heroically fought a series of public inquiries in the early 2000s for, over tall buildings, including the much-regretted so-called walkie-talkie. Nearly 10 years later, we're facing a very different set of issues, often down to setting, such as um, with incongruous development harming some of the most cherished London scenes, such as this picturesque Thames conservation area shown on the green. There's actually a public inquiry about this site this morning. We aren't trying to impose a low-rise model on all of London or to pickle the capital in time, but some of the most precious views, such as these Arcadian Thames views, which stir emotion in those walking along the Thames path and inspired artists for centuries, can inspire us today as well if they are safeguarded. Um, just coming to a close now. Um, we objected strongly to a 28-storey tower that leaned over these grade one late 17th century almshouses you can see on the left. They were built for, quote, decayed masters and commanders of ships or you widows of such. And thankfully, that tower has now been um, seen off. We were alarmed to discover that the 40-storey tower under construction in the former Olympic Park that you can see on the right there was filling that clear sky profile of St. Paul's Dome from a protected 18th century viewing mound in Richmond. We must remember what defines London's special character to maintain its distinctive identity, and protected views, 3D modelling, plan-led and character-led approaches can all help with this. We at Historically England regularly welcome great new design that makes its own positive contribution to a place. Um, but we want development to consider its context and think where, particularly where this is sensitive or where there are strategically important views for the image and identity of the capital, we expect decisions to respond accordingly. 
Through an exhibition called I Am London, we photographed a wide range of Londoners from different walks of life in front of the London building that means the most to them. I show you a selection of eight here out of the 60 portraits that we took. I was trying to find those that had sky um, and tall buildings in them. And quite interestingly, I wanted a good gender mix, of course, as well. And most of, most of the women's photographs were, were interiors, and there weren't very many big, grand, dramatic skyscapes, but we, we found a few there. Um, a number of the portrait sitters chose major landmarks, others more personal places of their life's love or work. These signify, of course, their own individual identity, but many of the places chosen were owned more broadly than that. Our goal was to show how important London's heritage is to London's future, but it tells us more than that as well. London is the tapestry of proud and diverse people and places, and many of the places that these sitters chose were historically exclusive at the time in history, but they now belong to all of us. So London is a complex, complicated, wonderful and sensitive city and we need careful planning and great placemaking to help London grow in ways that keeps its special identity intact. Thank you. Thanks so much, Emily. I think um, there probably aren't very many of us that would disagree that London's historic fabric is intrinsic to its identity and um, one of the main things that we all enjoy about being and living here. How that historic fabric plays into or cooperates or doesn't rub, rub up against the sort of accelerated forces of urban development and global finance and how, how all of those things are affecting the fabric of the cities. Stuff that hopefully we can pick up on in about half an hour. Um, so before that, uh, let me introduce Morag Myerskoff, who's one of the UK's most prolific designers. I'm sure you've come across her work, um, hopefully in real life. Uh, if not, then, then um, images of it. Morag works across textiles, prints, furniture, interiors, installations, and urban interventions, um, which is why I'm, I'm hoping that most of you have come across it somehow. Um, and I suppose it could be characterized with a very strong kind of graphic sensibility, typographic sensibility, but often being brought in to provide identity, to provide things like signage and wayfinding and um, you know, accents that help us understand where we are and what's special about where we are. So I'm really keen to, to hear a bit more about some of those projects when I come up. Okay. Hello, um, this is very grand here today. Okay, um, thank you for listening. I hope you're listening. <laughs> this, um, this is me. Um, I'm London-born, London-bred, until I die and then I'm dead. And this is my very um, sort of eclectic family. And we lived in Holloway in this house, well, two, the two houses for, since 1870. It was built and, and our house and we've lived there. Um, my family are French and German and English a little bit and Scottish and um, from living in this music, my, grand, my father was a musician, my great-grandfather was a clown, living in this sort of strange environment, I felt that that was where I belonged and when I went to school and everything I felt like I didn't quite fit in and so for a very long time so it was great when I was at home. When I left home, I didn't fit in. And so I spent sort of 25 years working out how I could make my own sense of belonging. And, and now I have that. And, uh, and, and that, to me, my sense of belonging, because I'm the middle child of three girls. I had no space. I always had a bunk bed. It is about space for me, my home, a dog, and my partner. I should put maybe that the other way around. <laughs> 
Um, it's not about children. It's not. It's just this very small thing. And the, now I feel like I understand where how I, where I belong and how I belong. And so on that basis, I wanted to work out how I could. Can I find that for groups of people? Um, so this is my mantra: Make happy those who are near and those who are far will come. Um, so I'm just going to go through three sh uh, projects shortly, short, quickly. Um, this is a project in Graz for a festival that was about um, Graz in Austria. It's very, um, they're very strict, <laughs> is all I can say, not very culturally integrated. And this arts festival wanted to bring lots of the communities together. And this is... Um, the pavilion for the Socialist Party in the People's Park, but it wasn't really very um, friendly or anything. So for this festival, um, I was asked to make a big installation that people would come together, and we worked with an art gallery, and the gallery worked with all the communities in Graz, and they would come together and they'd cook and they'd share recipes, and they would mix together, because all the different cultures in Graz just lived in their little pockets. London is a bit more integrated, but it's not like that there. And so this space was, a, was to try and get people to come together. And to do that, I also worked with 20 different groups of people, and we did... Um, these teenage boys were not so sure about doing <laughs> But they actually really loved it, and the gang leader was the one who did the most intricate pattern. I'll show you in a minute. And what I, why I use pattern, when I do these workshops, I use pattern because, and just grids, and there's, I don't show books, they just do exactly what they want. What's so wonderful about these patterns, they could be from anywhere or any culture, but actually they're just made from stickers, and people just are enjoying themselves, and you can get these results, and it really, really brought people together. And then we made all these banners in the, in the middle of Graz. And then this was the actual space. So the idea was there, all the doors were open. It was called Wide Open, that anybody could come in and out and just enjoy themselves. Everybody could mix together. And in the end, it, it, um, it wasn't about... One, when I do these projects, it's, I just do it and then give it away. And then the people who are running it and doing all the food and getting together, that's what it's all about. Them in, then um, sort of building their new identity together. I worked um, on This Is Sue Garden Estate in Peckham and South London Gallery. I can just say that they, they are the most amazing people to have worked with. They've built, they, they had a, they work with the, with the estate to do class, art classes for children. There's this art block that the gallery have worked with to bring all the kids together for many years. And then they raise the money and um, have, with the rebuild of the estate, to make this art block inside for them. But it was really sort of just white walls and really boring. And the kids had had this really funny little cute place that they'd made their own. So then I was brought in. This, so this was their previous place. And, you know, they liked it. It was messy, but they liked it. And then they were given this fantastic place. But look, really lost everything. So then I worked with them, and we did workshops, and, then, and I made all the interventions in the space with their work. But it is better if it's they've got sound. <laughs> But you get a sense of what they're doing. 
but it's really brilliant. If you look on the South London Gallery website, they've got this little video and all the kids speak about it and what they get from it. And really the whole idea is you can get these little kids to get involved in art, but what, what, we're, re what we're really trying to do is show them that you can continue doing art and you can, that it can be fulfilling and you can have a career in it as well and that they can carry on. They don't have to leave this art class when they're six. They can go on to teenagers and then go on and do things with it. So this is all their work. And this is the little girl. She was rapping, and she came up with the name, and it's the, um, the house, the gallery under my house. Or oh, the club under my house, sorry. I'm a bit, like, throw and no sound. Anyway, I think we'd better move on from that. But it's really, really worth watching them because they're so fantastic. And then, um, so this has continued on. And finally, with Ditchling Museum down in um, Hazzocks in Sussex, I was speaking to them. They were thinking of getting a career to Kent exhibition. And I was, um, I, and they asked me what did I want to do. And I said, I really love bandstands because I think the structures are brilliant because people can just come and perform and they're free and it's amazing and I'm obsessed with belonging so they said okay Moag, why don't we try and raise the money and you can make your belonging bandstand so we again worked with lots of groups of um, six groups in Sussex to find all different age groups to find out what belonging meant to them to write to, to write their descriptions of it or and so these were different social groups sorry <laughs> and these this group here which was so amazing because I'm I think we all get a bit bored of workshops and so I get worried oh is a workshop interesting enough but these people had never done a workshop before and they thought it was the most rewarding day they'd ever had and it was so wonderful so each these in this group there were two um uh, so two community groups in Hastings and they belonging meant very diff different things to each of the groups and it was interesting to find that out so these were the words that came out of um, the groups so Hangleton one was about their environment and what they could see outside their windows and the other one was about relationships with each other and then in New Haven, there's a really young group of people who have moved to New Haven, and they really want to build an identity in New Haven. And they were really punk, and they wanted to do their own thing, and now they've done, they're now doing a festival all around the bandstand, so they're doing their own belonging festival. You should go down and see it. It's in a couple of weeks' time. And then we also uh, worked with different groups of children, and... With children, obviously, animals mean a lot to them when belonging to them when they're little and their family and love. But I quite like relax. I thought that one was a good one. And this was good peace. Nothing, you, I don't feed them anything. They just do absolutely what they want to do. And then it's also about getting people involved in making the work. So when they get involved in making the work, they're part of the work. And then these were, these, this was on Brighton, on the, on, next to the sea, with all their messages telling everybody what belonging meant to them. And this was the Brighton one. But for me, what was more important is when we went to these community groups. So this is the Hangleton community. And what, they, what we found that they said, by having the bandstand outside, 
all the people in the estates would migrate to it, whereas previously in the community centre, when they did their arts festival, nobody would go in. But then they got so many more people involved, and they've asked if they could keep the bandstand. But the thing is, that's, I don't think they need the bandstand. They maybe need the bandstand next year again, but they don't need it actually out there all the time. But it's just this idea that they love the fact they could see how that has brought everybody together. And that's the last image. So um, I hope that sort of gives you an idea of uh, their different projects that show how you can get people involved and how they make it. And then you give it to them and it's theirs. They can do what they want with it. Thank you. Uh, I can do. Thanks so much, Morag. Um, and also, lots of interesting points there about not only your own practice identity and your own way of working, but also the value of participation in, in, in terms of reifying perhaps your own identity. Okay, so our final speakers, if you're still, um, I'm sure you're still kind of, um, you've got a bit more stamina for another speaker, I hope. So <laughs> last but not least, we, uh, we have uh, Mustafa, I'm sorry, I'm having to check your name again, Shahab Adin, am I saying it right? Um, who is a principal uh, designer at KPF Architects, has 20 years experience, more than 20 years experience as an architect, um, developing um, sometimes quite large projects, uh, large urban projects and um, the international operations of KPF across um, offices across the world. So there might be interesting questions about global identity. Um, just a few projects that I, I picked up on that um, I'd like to pick your mind about is the Abu Dhabi airport, which is, I understand, one of the largest um, uh, projects in the world. So how one um, creates an identity for something that is, is quite so large, is, it must be a huge challenge. And then there are other... Um, pieces of work in, for example, Istanbul and Kuwait, where um, I think there's an international identity that's wanting to be presented to the world, while at the same time taking into account the cultural context that those buildings sit in. So I'm really keen to hear more about this. So if you would welcome Mustafa to the stage. Thank you. I thought I should, uh, instead of focusing on some of the big buildings that, that we usually do, is, is to kind of look at London and maybe be self-critical a little bit about um, some of the briefs that we get and some of the aspirations that, that we usually get approached with. And it is about creating identity. It is about creating icons in uh, cities around the world. Around the world. Um, but, but the effect of that uh, is actually quite interesting to map out across a number of cities and then trace it back to London to see where we're heading and, and uh, what do we think London is going to look like uh, in, in the future. So uh, Emily did a much better job at explaining uh, some of those historic elements, but towers were always identified as part of the image of the city, so even though it wasn't, it, it wasn't high at the time, it was quite high, and, and that's part of the identity of London, along with other buildings uh, that, again, have a vertical marker and, and are a building that are also seen uh, from, from a distance or through a, a, a big setting. Uh, St. Paul's obviously is a, is a key one, and the protection of the height of St. Paul had a formative impact on what London looks like now. 
the idea that you take key views from across town and you kind of obliterate anything that's under that. It's a plane that you cannot penetrate. Uh, is, 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 is an interesting idea. Uh, it's an idea that has been tested now for a while, not completely successfully because we can see examples of things where it didn't go wrong, but, uh, where it did go wrong, but uh, it's an idea nonetheless that, that has formed London. And again, as, as, as was shown before, you still have buildings that slip through the, the gap and, and buildings that are affected, affecting this idea. This is by one of our competitors, by the way. So... <laughs> I'm going to leave this image here for a couple of seconds. <laughs> um, so the way to solve the problem was to say you can build high building, but only in certain areas where they form a cluster, which is a kind of a noble idea to say you, you kind of you know, play around in this area, but don't touch the rest of London. It worked for a while, and, and the two clusters developed. Um, it, it, it was fine. Some of the new building, again, as Emily explained, some of the new building, uh, like the Gherkin, became icon on their own right. We, we've done the building at the frontier. Uh, what, and obviously, Canary Wharf has always been kind of a faraway uh, cluster that nobody really cared about. You can do anything here, it, it, but it just comes, still worked as a cluster. Fast forward a few years, and a series of clusters are developing. And the question that, that, that is now need to be asked is, are these clusters interfering with the idea of a couple of zones where you can build high, or, or are they becoming, uh, do, are they prolific enough to start to merge these clusters together and for London to kind of start to, 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 to lose this, this kind of low, high kind of uh, uh, duality to it? This is an image that shows what if all the buildings that are under planning are built. And, and you can start to see how things start to kind of morph. The, the, the individual high buildings that are coming up in certain areas are, are interfering with the, that idea of cluster. But at the same time, the cluster itself is becoming very dense to the point where it, it's almost like a big blob. Um, the walkie-talkie didn't help by kind of being far away from the center of that cluster. So how, 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 how can we forecast what would happen? I thought what would be nice is to kind of go through a number of cities where that process has been fast-tracked and they did things very quickly to, uh, to get to a point where, where, where they have a new identity. They created their own new identity, but I think we can learn from them. And in a, in a forum like this, I thought it would be good to talk about Dubai because it's always good to bash Dubai when you talk about high building because they did a lot of things that are wrong. And that, that's an example of what Dubai li was like not, not long time ago. Uh, this is what Dubai looks like now. They managed to build an enormous amount of building, and if you can try to spot the kind of the, the individuality of the building, each building is trying to be an icon. Each building is trying to mimic either mimic a, a building that exists somewhere, or, or try to kind of create something new. It's a, for lack of better word, it's a zoo of architecture. It's a, it's a kind of anybody can do whatever. The the, the kind of the combination of all of these buildings start to create almost like a background. It, the, the individuality of the building started to disappear, and you get this background of super high buildings. So for them to create the identity of the city, they had to go to extreme heights. They had to create a building that is, so far, the highest building in the world. But to do that, and with a with building of that, that caliber, comes 
cost and efficiency and, and other discussions that, that we need to bring back into the fold when we talk about why we build high buildings. So, for example, the line, the datum line that says zero here is the end of the usable floors in all of these buildings. And so when you look at the first one, which is the, the one in Dubai, the Burj Khalifa, they have 244 meters in height, which is unusable, uh, uh, un unusable void, basically. Uh, we call it the, the, the ego add-on to the building. And that is close to the height of the shard, as an empty thing on top of, of the building. But, but it's, not, it's not the only building that have done this. It's, it's, it ran through a number of these buildings. By the way, none of these are ours. <laughs> if, we, if we look at a, at a slightly more mature example, a better example, where things have been done, uh, with, the, with the benefit of kind of length of time. Obviously, New York always had the two kind of important landmarks there, the Chrysler building. And, the, and so the, around this building, a skyline developed. And that skyline is, is kind of the uh, skyline that identify Manhattan. So I'm trying to... Okay. So again, Manhattan, like Dubai, in a way from a distance, became this image of of a series of buildings that come together to form almost like a background. However, what they haven't done is they haven't forgot the important bit, which is the creation of civic spaces, public spaces, amenity spaces, as well as take good care of the streetscape. So when we look at, at an image in, in a street in, in, uh, in Manhattan, it's not necessarily dominated by Halbening. Why Halbening still exists, it's not dominated by them. And, and streets are usable and friendly. And when you compare that to a street in in Dubai, where this was completely left out, even though now they're, they're, they're recuperating and, and in other places they're trying to kind of create the, the, the street life. But, but that, that duality kind of, or that, that kind of contrast tells you, gives you an example about how density is not the problem. It's, it's how, how do you deal with it as it hits the ground, as, as it develops into, as it gives back to the city in terms of public realm and other things. Uh, so if we take an example, this is one of our building under construction. It's going to be finished in a couple of years' time. So this is at the bottom of the Grand Central Station in Manhattan. And the idea is that the bottom of the building is almost given back to the city in terms of improvement to the links from the station up uh, to the... Uh, uh, up to the streets through the building and also the creation of public spaces that, that are accessible. Anybody can go into those, those, those lower levels of the building. And, and you can see here that, that idea that uh, you build high but you're giving back is an idea that could work really well. I thought uh, if we touch on Hong Kong for a couple of minutes, Hong Kong is a great example of why you have to build high when you have the constraints they have. It's a stretch of land uh, that's kind of bound by a range of mountain at the back and water at the front. And effectively, every building in Hong Kong is high. Um, it's an extremely dense building, uh, dense, dense city. Basically, you have three streets running through Hong Kong. That's all of Hong Kong. Um, on the other side of Hong Kong is slightly uh, more, more dispersed. And the building there that we see is one of our buildings. But that, that was, as opposed to what's happening in Hong Kong, that, that was a statement to establish the new part of town, which is the Kowloon the Kowloon side. Uh, you probably haven't heard of the city, maybe you have, but you probably haven't heard of it. 
but it is a city that's important to touch on because Shenzhen is the place where a lot of the experiments in high building are happening now. Again, a lot of good lessons to learn. I'm not showing it because it's a good example. I'm showing it because I think we can learn from it. Uh, it's a city that has grown uh, tremendously over the last 25 years. It, it started as a village and in, in kind of trying to compete with Hong Kong, creating the new hub for IT technology in China, the city grew from a village to a city of 15 million people in 25 years. It's, it's one of the uh, fastest growing cities on earth at the moment. Uh, what they had to do to deal with the issue of identity and the issue of kind of uh, creating uh, zones that are identifiable in the city is to create these multiple city centers, multiple CBDs. Each one of those have its own character and its own kind of icon. That's uh, uh, one, of, one of our buildings here, uh, the 600 meter tall tower. Uh, the idea in here is that uh, those, those uh, city centers have different characters. So this is a, 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 the business center that is financial and, and insurance and other things. That is the Shenzhen Bay, which is uh, more residential. Again, we did the building, the high building in the middle there. Um, when, when you map these buildings together, you can start from a distance, you can start to see the, the, the kind of the, I guess, cluster. It's, 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 it's a form of cluster, but that's spread over a long distance. And, and that, that kind of creates that skyline that differentiates uh, those centers from the rest of background building, which are all high at the same time. So if we theorize it a little bit and, and, and look back and try to kind of understand how can, we, how, how can we kind of approach high building? First of all, you have to define what high building is. This is London's high buildings. Obviously, the, the shard is the highest one, I think close to 300 meters. Uh, when, when you apply this to Shenzhen, that will be a low-rise building. Uh, the buildings that you see here are, are in the 600s, 450, 450. So the idea of, of scale is quite important, and the scale obviously relates to the context. Uh, when, when, you, when you start to understand what is the morphology of these super high-rise buildings, if you take a city with the component that make up the city, be it centers that are open spaces or cultural areas or uh, civic spaces, and you turn them vertically, suddenly those vertical components start to be part of that city. So the idea of, of building high buildings that are for private use, I think is, is, is something that, that, that we need to move away from. Um, and like Emily explained, when, when we talk about the, the high building of the, uh, the Houses of Parliament, there was a positive thing because it was a civic center. So how can these buildings also have a civic aspect to them? And, and how can you stack functions inside those towers so that people can actually use this vertically? There's a lot of efficiency in being stacked vertically with, with you know, less pressure on public transport and all of that. So how can you do that with, with this kind of assembly of pending? So this is not a theoretical diagram because it is built. And that, that's a building in Seoul that have this function and people can go in, either go to the top for leisure and an observation deck or the bottom which is retail or the hotel, residential and other things that are stacked inside that building. Uh, a more, a less iconic but more kind of clear example of that is this building we've done in, uh, in Hong Kong, it's a high sun place. Uh, it's one of the building, one of the one of the building where the retail have stretched the highest 
internally, up to 14 floors of retail. And that's because of the configuration of Hong Kong. So, uh, trying to finish quickly, theoretical, uh, build, theoretical projects about how, how, how do you create a vertical city in Tokyo. And if we quickly take it back to London, so this is, this is the starting point. This is the idea that, 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 that there are clusters. This is the cluster kind of morphing and a little bit changing because of, of some building that didn't conform completely. This is what's going to happen soon when some of these other buildings that are under construction are going to finish. And that's what London is going to look like if we don't do anything about it. This, this is actually reality. This is going to be like this soon. So it's a question mark I'm leaving open for now. I was wondering about the idea of, of whether or not a place, how, whether or not you need a landmark for a place and what that landmark needs to be. So there's, there's a lot of discussion at the moment in, in London that if you're trying to redevelop a, a particular area and give it a new identity, there's, there's often a local authority saying, well, let's, let's get a really tall building, let's have that be the, the, the landmark for that place, that will put the place on the map. And I'm wondering if, if, if we can think more broadly about how you give a landmark to a place and actually perhaps there are some much more wonderful things to do on the ground and particularly thinking about some of those extraordinary things you were doing there more. Like actually, if, if we can make places have an identity by thinking slightly more at, at, at lower levels rather than needing to have a kind of visual icon. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the idea of a, of a landmark or a high building identifying a place is, is, is a wrong idea. The idea of a place being a place of certain value that allows a high building to exist next to, next to it because mm -hmm. it's giving value to the, you know, it's, it's a place that, that, that people are desiring to be and so you have to build something to, for them is, is a better idea. Uh, both of them lead to the same conclusion, which is if you have a good space that works, then, then, then there will be desire to be there and there will be density associated with that. But the high, the, 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 the composition of high building need to happen around the economics of it, around the, the, the public connectivity. The, it, it, there is a lot of factors that needs to come in, the last one of which is, is creating an icon on its own right, with mm. like, like what, what happened in Dubai and other places. But is that what you find? I mean, I guess I'm curious about discussions that you might have with clients or even with city councils. Is that the expectation that a building will bring the success of the place? Not the building, but the combination. Because these buildings usually don't exist in isolation. They, right. they exist amongst kind of new master plans or new, 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 new uh, context. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very interesting question because uh, you, we, we, I guess, are fortunate, maybe not, to have clients that come into us to say, we want to build a landmark building. So it's, it's kind of a brief that's given from the start. And to unpack it and to kind of question it is part of what we do. Exactly. And, yeah. and at the end, it has to be the right solution for, for that site. And you need to be able to defend it, whether the client asks for it or not. You need to be able to go in front of authorities and, and defend sure. it. Sure. Right. Do you often feel like, or do you ever feel like you're being brought in to give a bit of identity to an otherwise banal situation? Or how do, how do, how, how do you feel about that? Because you cultivated quite a distinctive visual identity. Mm. So how does that work when it's invited to sort of be situated in lots of different places? Um, I worked on the old vinyl factory in Hayes and um, I was the first uh, really person to brought in on that and I looked into the whole history of the buildings and, and 
then put in temporary spaces in there to try and build and to begin building an identity for that space that then was then used as the brief to give in to the architects and various things. So I did, in a temporary way, um, start putting the narrative back into a place that had a lot of uh, stories to tell but had lost everything. Been forgotten somehow. Yeah, well, yeah. because it was desolate. So years. in that sense, you don't think you were bringing, let's say, your own visual identity with you, but it was much more about finding what was there. In, um, that, in that instance, yes. yeah, it was. Um, I, I, last year I worked on the Bernie Grant Centre designed by David Ajay 10 years ago and you know that was uh, an amazing building 10 years ago but it lost a little bit of um, life <laughs> I think is the best way of putting it and so in that, con- in that in, for that one I worked with the, the community and the people who were there to, to then build a cafe back in there that was much more suitable for being, for a building that has been there 10 years, learning what people actually in the surroundings need rather than a building... Well, I'm sure David Adjo did do that. <laughs> but I think it's also the experience of time when something's been there for a little while, then you can find that maybe some things work and some things don't, and you have to sort of re-look at things yeah. and, and change. And so certain elements are right, but others are wrong. And, and we just made this cafe, which in the years gone up... I mean, it didn't have that huge footfall before, but it has gone up by 75%. Wow. And it's, much more, it's a much more a cafe that's much better for the community now than it was. Do you think that you're... Um, I suppose before seeing, seeing you talk about your work, I had imagined that there's this very strong visual aesthetic that, that you bring with you, but actually I hadn't understood quite how deep the participation um, aspect of it is. And um, I wanted to ask you to speak a bit more about perhaps the relationship between an identity that one owns and that one's taken part in, as opposed to one that is perhaps larger forces that have brought them to you, say, a government or... Um, but that's why I think both things, though, you know, there's working on the ground, working small, you know, within cups of tea process, you know, that that can work also with... The other big things mm. can come in and work together. But I think it's really important that people feel, from the projects that I've done, that they... They, they, they work on the project with you in one form or another and then it belongs, it absolutely belongs to them and then they learn to love it and yeah. then they can make it grow or change and it's not set, it hasn't got so many rules, yeah. it, can be, it can evolve and grow organically. I think that's, um, we could probably carry on, but there, <laughs> I think there are common threads in what you're saying in, in the sense that identity is at once in flux always and subject to various forces of change but also that there are some aspects of fixity and familiarity that that we sort of seek at least or that we seek to make sense okay so um it's it's over to you so if you wouldn't mind sticking your hands right up so that the um people with microphones can see she just come fantastic thank you um can i ask a question about future conservation of buildings when considering a tall building for conservation how much attention would you want to pay to how it works at street level rather than what it looks like from a distance? Because I'm thinking a building like the Gherkin, which I think hasn't yet been listed, uh, but probably will be, works extremely well at street level, whereas um, the building opposite, the Lloyds building, which obviously looks very dramatic, is quite hostile at street level. Mm. Um, One for you, I guess. (laughs) 
Um, it's Although we could all, yeah, we could yeah, all chip in if you feel like you want to. It'll be, it'll be yeah. good, yeah. And I can sort of give you the official view and then you guys can say something more interesting. Um, they, yeah, I think it's, it's a really important consideration when, when we're looking at listing or what needs to be sort of protected into the future. We have to think about everything in the round. But how a building works is a really important factor, particularly for modern buildings. And that means works in all sorts of ways. So from a technological standpoint, you know, that was, there was a ruling that actually... You know, the Pimlico School, for example, it had to, had to work as a school building. You couldn't have shards of glass falling into a school. That was kind of fundamentally ruled it out. But also, does it work in a social sense? You know, is there, does it draw in community? So it will be a factor. Um, and it'll, it's certainly a factor from our point of view in terms of what we give advice to for new design. Mm -hmm. um, absolutely. So, you know, particularly these days in London, we're thinking almost exclusively about how something works at ground level as, as a first point of principle. Um, but it won't be the only factor. So Lloyd's, of course, is listed. It's listed at grade one just because it's such an extraordinary thing in so many levels. And even if it hasn't, you know, that might be something that's of lesser interest is how it works at ground level. So it obviously won't be the only deciding factor. But it's... Um, but it is a really important factor, both in recognising stuff for the future protection, but also about what we what we give support to in terms of new design. Because these days, it's, you know, it's completely important in terms of building community, thinking about um, how places actually work, is what they do at ground level. And you, you showed that really graphically in um, the Dubai versus New York yeah. scenario. Yeah, I think if, if you take the Gherkin as, a, as an example, it's a good example, because it's a building that I remember after it was built... And obviously the planners at the time objected to it because it's a high building. And so, but after it was built, they liked it so much because it was kind of going, you know, the St. Paul's Dome was doing this and, and, and the Gherkin was doing So they wanted now to protect the view of, 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 of the Gherkin, which was, I think, a good thing to do. However, if you look at what happened now, all the buildings have covered it up, so you can't actually see the Gherkin anymore. So, so if you list it, you're listing something that's already kind of damaged in a way in terms of its setting. But um, I think I, I go back to something that, that you said about, about the building, the modern buildings that are now being listed were, were buildings that were controversial at their own time. Mm. And, and that's really interesting because that tells you that we don't really know what, what the criteria are. You know, we, we, we have to wait until it evolves and, and people appropriate it and it, it becomes a value that was not anticipated at the time. That, that, that people kind of hold on to down the line. And, and that, that's, that's something that's interesting about listing new buildings. So again, I guess this time question is coming into it. On the one hand, um, obviously clients and developers imagine and would like to envision a certain identity, but until you know, 20, 30 years have passed and, and the situation has actually worked and been used, one doesn't know what the best use mm. is. And, and various listed buildings that I can think of have perhaps changed their function somewhat. You know, perhaps they're not housing quite the same people that they used to house, or perhaps they're not hosting the same functions that they used to. So it's, it's interesting to, to consider, as you said, Emily, why we're conserving something, and is it an aesthetic conservation or a functional conservation, a use value conservation? M mind you, when, when something is listed, it's protecting it from the same owners doing things to it. True. So it's not like the owners, when they want identity and they want landmark, they don't necessarily want it listed. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's this question of this tension between allowing something flux and holding it tight. More questions, please. <laughs> One over there. Ah, there's, there's a gentleman over here. Fantastic. Thank you. Don't be so shy, the rest of you. Thank you. you. Um, my question relates to, I suppose it's prompted by London. I live uh, right in the centre of the city. And I'm very much aware of um, how tall buildings are becoming... Um, 
if you like, townscapes in their own right. They are, they are hundreds of thousands of people in these buildings. And I wonder to what extent, as um, an architect, for example, um, Mustafa, you, you consider and prompt a discussion and debate with your clients about these things and in terms of the occupancy and the way the buildings socially and economically function as much as the discussion about the city and the street and the groundscape because I think to my mind it seems there's a new identity here which is a series of towns we're building next mm. to each other and um, it's not so much the appearance of them that's, that's if you like secondary it's the content and the way they're used um, and I wonder to what extent you have those debates both in London and further afield um, with your clients and with the people who write the programs. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a, it's a key factor in, in figuring out the, the makeup of the building and, and what is, what, what's, what's inside this, this high kind of stack of functions. And uh, what we found is that the single-use building are, are, are the most detrimental building to the uh, to allow people in and, to, and you know, headquarters building are, are all about security and about kind of almost barriers before you come in. Uh, but but multi-use building, mixed-use building that are truly mixed-use where you have hotels and functions and galleries and retail and all of that are the way forward. And, and they are uh, really the essence of, of coming up with this idea of, of the building, especially in Asia where the super high buildings, when, when you try to take people up 100 floor up, it does make sense to have shuttles that shoot you up in, in 15, 20 seconds. You'll be in you know, level 80 or level 90. And that, that's quite important to then reflect that into what happens at that floor. That becomes kind of the lobby, the sky lobbies, and the lobbies for hotels and lobbies for other functions. So allowing people to wander through vertically inside the building is actually key in making these successful buildings. Just one further point. I mean, one other observation is these buildings tend to be quite corporate. Mm-hmm. And it's that corporate world and the city, and I think there's a greater contrast now and a more valuable, and more acts work, and you see the great value of independent thinking of young people mm-hmm. and how that influences and um, becomes important to the city itself. And it's quite a contrast to the corporate world. It's an observation. Yeah. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a valid one. I mean, certainly if we're thinking about London and London's identity... Um, I don't know, I don't want to speak for the rest of you, but it certainly seems like the, the sort of social identity of London is in danger of changing, if not already, um, because it's, it, it's rather hostile to certain types of, or certain, yeah, certain bands of identity and, and increasingly friendly to other ones. And those two are, are quite disparate. Um, I wonder if you have questions or thoughts that you'd like to share about that, or, or whether any of us do. I mean... How long have you been in London? I've been in London all my life. I mean, I'm very positive. In 1993, I put a hoarding up in Mark Lane, (laughs) and it was too colourful, and and everybody was trying to take it down. So, and now, you know, the when I work with councils, they can't get enough of integrating artists into things, and so I think there's a there's a lot more understanding of what is possible by working with artists and designers on a, on a, on a ground level. It doesn't have to cost huge amounts of money. I think in the past, thing, mm. people thought everything, every, well, everything to do with building usually costs loads of money, doesn't it? You know, but actually, you can make quite 
significant interventions with quite relatively small amount of money and, and maybe it might start off temporary just to try something out and that's what's so wonderful about temporary because you know it's not it's not like a bronze or something you know it's just, you can try something out and see if people gravitate to it experiment and I think London people are allowing you know you, you do have that possibilities in London because lots of the different councils are opening up to possibilities and so I'm quite positive about things like that what do you think Emily do you think London's identity is as robust as it always has been yeah, I think yeah. so. I mean, it's, it's, it's hugely changing, but um, something we we try really hard to do in our own little way is just is to capture the the breadth and depth of that identity, even in things like through listing, for example. You know, that's just one way. But in the, in previous generations, that would have just captured the architectural canon. You know, the most mm. extraordinary buildings, often the grandest things. But we're really, really focused on making sure that we understand and capture you know, fairly, some ordinary things that might have extraordinary stories about them. So thinking about historic interest and thinking mm. about making sure that we capture you know, stories of immigration and migration and how that's changed the built landscape. And when there are really special things there, making sure that we recognize those as well. Because mm. that, in a way, it's kind of a, an, an honorary status to list for that reason. But it can feed into the planning process and it can mm. be one trigger to think, actually, let's take into account these special values or these multiple values about a place you think about a building that's changed uses from different communities using it over time, Brixton Market, for example, comes yeah. to mind. So yeah. I think even in our kind of policy way, we can try and influence that and, and capture that constantly changing but constantly specialness that London's identity has. It leads me to think about the international projects that you've worked on, yourself. I mean, um, you showed a lot of glass skyscrapers. Does, is there ever a concern within KPF how to differentiate these things or whether it becomes, you know, rather a homogenous urban fabric that one is producing internationally? Mm. How do you deal with these sorts of discussions? Um, the, I mean, there is a lot of glass going on in the cities I showed. Uh, however, I think, in no exception in all of the cities I showed, that is completely changing now. Mm. The idea that you can go and just build a, a glass sky rise, it's, it's not it's not happening anymore, both in terms of uh, environmental issues, aesthetic issues of kind of, even, even in China, looking back at, at, at their history now, the identifying new project with kind of pattern that used to exist on site, which wasn't important before, now it's really important. Uh, th- that's, that's definitely changing. Mm. And so while a lot of these buildings that, that you've seen had kind of the metal and glass aspect to them, a lot of the new buildings that are built now are a lot more solid and a lot more... Uh, uh, and do you think some of that is driven by questions of identity and spatial, con- uh, like, let's say, regional context or cultural context? I think so, and, yeah. and environmental, which mm-hmm. is also contextual. Mm-hmm. So I think the buildings that, that are built in certain areas need to reflect that area, both in terms of the history and the story of the city, but also in the environment, the kind of weather they have sure. and all of that. Sure. Can I invite any more questions? That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, Mustafa, I was really intrigued by your idea of vertical urbanism. Um, I understand the necessity to maximize open space in high-density cities such as Hong Kong, but I guess I'm skeptical about how inviting and how inclusive high-rise public open spaces can be, and I wonder how you sort of navigate that difficulty. Um, if, you, if we don't, we don't, have to, we don't have to go to Hong Kong. If you look at the walkie-talkie in London, they created a public space at the top of the building, which is completely public. And the idea was you allow anybody to come in any time, go up and down. Now they have to install queues downstairs and you have to reserve a ticket to get in. It's, it's hugely popular. 
the building we've done, I think the most successful one in that context is the one in, in Hong Kong, where even though it's 14 stories of retail at the base, but, but three, three levels of completely public space, public plaza that are floating in the air exist. And you can go there, have your lunch, and, and you know, socialize, and go back down without having to go through the retail. So I think if, if it's done successfully, and if it is an honest, genuine way of kind of getting people into the building, it could be quite rewarding. And, and that, that I think we need to think about. In some of the other buildings, uh, where, where you go up to kind of the, the lobby of a hotel, it's as, as open as, as, as hotels can be. If, if you're one of those people who would like to go have a coffee in the Ritz, then you go up and have a coffee in the Ritz. But it's not as open as a public space that sure. is that just there for you to enjoy. Sure. Can I just take a, a very quick survey of hands? How many people have been to the Sky Garden uh, on the walkie-talkie? Oh, a good number. Okay. You have right. Just, <laughs> just out of interest. Okay. So there was another question down here from the lady. With it. Hold on for the mic, if you don't mind. I just had two points. I wanted to ask Morag as an arts practitioner. Um, it's not the work that you're doing actually quite separate from these corporate spaces. Um, I don't see the link. Um, and the other thing is I'd also like, I suppose, everyone to talk a little bit more about environmental futures because we haven't heard a lot of that. And that's the future and the now. And I think that's terribly important. So that was my point. Yeah. So do you mean my work that I showed you is not in, in more commercial space? So, you know, uh, I mean, I, have, I, I don't know whether you, I, I did a big bridge for Battersea Power Station. Um, is it in the sense, so, so there's different work. When I do the community, so when the piece I did at Battersea Power Station that's a big bridge as you go into the new entrance of Battersea Power that, I didn't do that as a community piece. That is, that's me um, putting <laughs> my thing into that space to sort of bring, to sort of focus in and bring some materiality into a different... My question, as an arts practitioner, mm. then, is do you find that um, there is... I mean, I know there's a lot of these corporate spaces. As an artist, do you find it easy, then, to put your work into those spaces? Because, to me, the um, arts in the community... It, it, there is arts in the community, yes. Councils do fund, um, lo, you know, community artworks, but then it just seems to me a very separate space, these corporate city spaces. I don't see a lot of art going on about them. I don't see a lot of identity art oh. in them, either. I haven't. Um, British Land are trying to do a lot with Broadgate at the moment. That seems to be... I haven't done anything there yet, but that seems to be a place where they have realised that they've, um, they've made a two-corporate space. It's 20 years on, and they're opening up all the bottoms of their buildings that were mm. controlled spaces before, and now they're making them open. I maybe shouldn't be saying this, but I, I knew that they're doing that. They're starting to do that. So they can see, it has filtered through to the corporate people that there is a value in all these things that lots of different people have been doing over years because they can see how that draws people in. You can't just put any old cafe in somewhere or any old thing. You have to have something that that particular community... So they're understanding that communities are special, particular in areas and you can't just blanket something. So, um, And you can see what they've done over the TV centre... Uh, mm -hmm. 
where that there's been quite a lot of trying to work out how to bring those things in. So it's it's slow. I mean, you know, everything. You know, I work very fast uh, in a fast work, but to get people to change that way of thinking, you know, it takes it's taken longer, but it is starting. And, and are, that's part um, of what you're talking about, is opening all those spaces. There are, you know, several programmes, and you should check them out, because I think, you know, you might have critical opinions or you might be um, encouraged by them, but Sculpture in the City springs to mind of a programme that really tries to bring artwork into the, the most corporate spaces in the City of London. Um, it produces pretty interesting effects. They all respond to the buildings and... Um, bits of urban texture that they happen to be situated in and I think it's just this week or next week that this year's round of sculptures will be unveiled so I do agree with you though it's very different it seems to be um, a different scale of engagement that that, uh, perhaps Mustafa was talking about Mm. that you might have found with your clients at Battersea and that you find with a workshop of people who haven't been in a workshop before but then I think it's up to me to um, to you know, have this thought process that you know how to bring people together, and then there's and how that how you can bring that into various different environments. Mm. Are there okay? There's a question at the back. Sorry, there. I just wanted to ask. Again. Oh yeah, the future just to one. Remind, oh, sorry, I did ask about the. I feel really strongly about the um, environmental issues because that sure. really is the future, and for architecture, I think it should be included in the discussion, especially nowadays. Hold on, there a second at the back there. Mm-hmm. Um, can I invite any comments regarding um, environmentalism? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess I would say that conservation is inherently kind of sustainable approach to architecture. We're talking about you know, making better what we've got, or making even you talked about flexible uses. You know, reuse of existing buildings is a really important approach. And I would encourage all architects and designers in the room, and indeed developers, to think about starting perhaps with something that's already there instead of building something new. There's an extraordinary kind of heritage risk register with some really great opportunities, and you just want you need to find people with vision. You can take something really interesting and, and make that work. So that's, I guess, that's from our perspective what we'd most encourage from a sustainability point of view is using what we've got making it um, flexible for, for modern uses. Um, like I mentioned, with, with, with the new regulations that are basically becoming similar everywhere, environmental issues are, are extremely high, and the idea of green buildings and, and, and uh, low-energy buildings and all of that is, is quite high. Uh, one of the examples that I didn't talk a lot about, the, 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 the Tokyo kind of theoretical vertical city example, uh, we took that to an extreme where we also talked about how do you get water up something that's that high and, and there was an idea about harvesting clouds so you're high, you're high enough to kind of capture cloud and, and can, can you then kind of bring water down as opposed to up and down and, and things like this I think it is it, still being discussed but uh, more rudimentally uh, environmental issues and, and mostly to do with insulation of buildings and, and low energy buildings and all of that is now you cannot, you cannot escape it you cannot get through the system without incorporating it into the, into the building I think my thoughts on it, as far as just just since you asked the question and and now, um, I guess I was thinking about the identity of London and, um, you know, the the London yellow stock brick is what I think of the most when I think of London's identity and its its physical and material fabric. It's something that I discuss with my students quite a lot. You see that brick, you know you're in London. Why do you know you're in London? Because that's where the clay is from. I mean, really, in terms of an environmental sort of life cycle, we haven't gone very far. It's made of the stuff where we are. And I think there's there's something that we ought to perhaps recall and remember about that as much as there are 
global systems of um, sharing information and techniques and, and materials. Um, I think in terms of sustainability or environmental consideration and identity, I think it helps to... It's a bit like in food, you know, what grows together tends to go together in a dish, and, and perhaps we might try and re recall some of that architecturally as well. I don't know if you have more to add on environmental issues. Let's take the question at the back, if you don't mind. Hi. Um, so I guess there's more a question around time and the temporary aspects that, um, that Morag has been working on um, in the sense that projects of like that have testing grounds, um, meanwhile projects um, they're often they are given this a chance as a, as a test ground um, but we've been talking about creating identity but and that's kind of linked to also the creation of, of culture of a place um, and so the meanwhiles often do kind of produce that culture of a place and can knit a neighbourhood together. Um, I was just wondering if there's any possibility in terms of the kind of heritage of that that we should be looking at extending the life of those because um, often it's only aesthetic reasons that we preserve something and not necessarily uh, the kind of relationships that it creates. And then following that, the fact that actually meanwhile projects are also now being used as a tactic to get bigger projects through the door um, and whether that kind of temporary creation of culture is, is like a morally good thing or not whether mm -hmm. um, yeah I think that, that might be one for you yeah, most directly no, I, I agree I mean when I um, built the movement cafe in 2012 um, that area was just ignored and then they did it was always a meanwhile space they were always going to build something on top of it but then they did build something on top of it <laughs> anyway I won't make a comment about the architecture on that but um, and I think and it didn't and it lost it's, it's, it lost what it, what it was starting to become so I totally agree I think that you, you test it and then if it grows then in a way those things have to other things should build around it rather than wipe them away, you know, and it's a bit like that layering, of, you know, much more back to layering of things. So I, 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 I think it is a real shame. Um, I don't think it should be done like that. I, I think those things grow for a reason, don't they, and they're successful for a reason, and, and they shouldn't just make it so that somebody can come in and... Um, build a thing on top of it. It's very delicate, no. isn't it? Because sometimes those meanwhile projects produce unexpected um, Well, there, it's always unexpected because right. nobody ever knows. I, I think it's always unexpected. So then you need your, in an ideal world, you'd need your developer whoever owns the site to, to be willing to be flexible enough to then adapt you to their programme. Such as, um, I know that there's a building in... Um, on the South Bank that's owned by Zagolovich mm -hmm. uh, developers where they allowed that, a meanwhile site to... Um, generate lots of community events over seven or eight years and then realise actually we don't want this to be meanwhile it's become integral to the identity of the site and to the building that will eventually sit here so let's um, integrate it that's quite rare, I think that's an exception rather than a rule, it's, it's a difficult thing to do to preserve a temporary effect or to let's say extract the value of those temporary effects and then decide to sustain them if they weren't envisioned in the first place or, or, or kind of earlier on but it's um, definitely one to think about. Mm. I think we might have time for one more question, if anything is burning you up. Thank you for your presentation. I think they've been like, really, really good. Um, I remember like, last summer we organized here at the RA uh, another event about like, urban identity. 
and it was an, uh, that event what we examined was like uh, how London's identity it was defined as um, from its role as a global capital. Um, and that is connected with ideas of, of time and temporality. Um, and we normally, when we define like London's identity related with this kind of like very permanent element like the buildings and the local people that is living in, in London, but there is this identity that is defined also by uh, this condition of London as a kind of space in, in permanent flux. Um, and for instance, like one of the elements that we examined there, uh, it was about tourism and how tourism and tourists are very important to define a part of this identity because we've, I mean like, I've been living here in London for five years, I might live next year or in ten years or maybe I stay here forever. Um, but it's important to consider like how uh, about these people that are like just coming here mm. to work for a couple of years uh, or even just the tourists for instance like we wouldn't understand Oxford Street without the tourists and all these shops dedicated for them and it's part of this identity that is also important to um, emphasize um, because it's in, in a way it's also like the economic engine of, of, of the city and it's the tourism um, for instance like museum like the RA itself, like part of our audience are, are tourists and it's important to consider them as part of this identity. I would like to ask Emily, in, in this campaign that you saw with like the favorite places of different like people in London, um, like someone like them portrayed on, yeah, if there were like any uh, Londoner there that was like a temporary Londoner, like a tourist or other people. And what were the spaces that they selected? Because I think it's, it's interesting to see like what is like this other side of the London temporary population. That's actually a really interesting question. What would be the snapshot, the tourist, the outsider perspective? Did you have any tourists? Or? Um, no, but we had lots of people who weren't necessarily here from all their lives. There were some kind of born and bred Londoners and some who were fairly recent arrivals. There was one, there was a competition for the 60th one. I think we took 59 and then there was a 60th one which anyone could apply for. Um, and I think he was a fairly recent arrival, so not a tourist or an impromptu moment, but a, a fairly a recent arrival to the city who come as a refugee, actually. So, there, um, so it's, yeah, it's an interesting thought, what would you... And, of course, one always... And we should all ask ourselves the same question, I suppose. Like, well, what, what would I choose? Why <laughs> did you choose this last person, the, the refugee? Um, yeah, it's awful. I can't remember. I can see the picture in my mind. That's, Sorry, to put you on the spot there. I can't remember. It was obviously... Yeah, I can't remember. It was symbolic to him, of course. Mm -hmm. But um, if you look at it, it's got I Am London, and it's they're, they're, they're actually opened at St. Joseph Martin's. We did the first exhibition there. Um, but they're all still online. But I think it is really interesting to, to test ourselves, a kind of what would you choose? You have to choose something that is architecturally symbolic of, of your entire identity in place. It's well, quite a nice one challenge. of the portraits she's just told me was of Morag. So, oh, what building did you... <laughs> there we go. I had my studio, and behind me I had a bus, a uh, number bus thing, you know, like the, one of the old bus yeah. things, because of the bus I used to take from home, Holloway, mm. to, yeah, so it was in my So in extremely my personal Lovely. identity, I guess, yeah. in, in that sense. Yeah, I think the post is up in Walthamstow or something. <laughs> I can remember. <laughs> okay, let me take our final question from the lady in the stripy t-shirt there. Um, I just wanted to ask um, a slightly kind of also really important question that spans heritage as well as 
art as well as public spaces. And I was wondering what you thought of the uh, art washing phenomenon, which um, I'm thinking specifically about places like Balfron Tower, where um, Beau Arts had, um, I mean, as an art organization, had artist studios in there. They had artists living in the place. As you know, as it was about to get developed, the social tenants had been already been kicked out. The mm -hmm. artists eventually got kicked out as it was getting listed grade two star, for example. Another example is um, sort of the King's Cross development, which, Shimi, I'm sure you're very... Um, you know, uh, familiar yes. with, but the uh, as the develop, you know, I, I just thought it was really ironic that there was an art festival happening as the art student foundation, like the foundation students were losing their funding. Yes. And how does every one of you sort of negotiate that tension? Because, you know, I mean, I'm an art practitioner myself. I mean, I really, I'm, you know, I love sort of community engaged art, but at the same time, it's this double edged weapon. And how do you, how do you navigate it? Uh, really, really good question. Um, yeah, let's see. We've got ten minutes. <laughs> Maybe I can, I can have Yeah, this. please, jump in. So uh, I think art has been used to create value in, in, in areas, and that is a kind of discussion about meanwhile use also. Uh, but uh, art has been used to create an identity to an area that, that, that otherwise wouldn't have had that identity. And then when it becomes successful enough, unfortunately, it, it gives way to other other economics and other 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 other, other things that, that come and replace them, and that is not just in London. That's uh, that's everywhere. The kind of artists' quarters kind of keep moving away, and, and and things will happen to them. But but as they move to areas, they create certain identity and certain certain aspect that then becomes worth worthy of preserving or keeping or, or things like this. So I, I I don't think there's a clear answer to how do you force it because it's really happening on its own. You cannot really engineer it. You might find that developers do try to engineer it. Yeah, no, I mean, I no, guess... No, you cannot engineer the, the kind the of... The opposite, yeah, and let's say the protective <laughs> thing. Which, I mean, that's... It, people try. Um, there are artists' housings and, uh, and projects that are meant to sustain and, and foster um, art workers, not only artist uh, practitioners individually, but... Uh, so, for example, I know that... Create, for example, a building 12 dedicated artist houses that are never going to be resold on the private market. They are for artists. And as long as you're practicing as an artist or acting as an art worker, in, and how do you judge that? But, um, but that's what that development will be um, reserved for. Now, again, that's an exception rather than a rule. And it has to be said, where's left in London? Who would have thought Nunhead would be really expensive? Who would have thought, you know... Um, so it, it does tend to happen in a fairly metabolic way. You know, Greenwich Village, another example in New York City, used to be really divey, and now it's not. So it, it, maybe it's something, on the one hand, I think perhaps an artist community almost accepts that being part of an avant-garde means that there are things behind you that then replace you. Um, but uh, on the other hand, I totally take your point. It's, it's, uh, it's ironic and upsetting. I don't know if you've got more to, to add to that. Well, just, just to say that about, I mean, we, we see obviously a really strong link, particularly in cities, between heritage buildings or sites, places, and the creative industries. And it's just kind of picking up on that point that you just mm. mentioned there, Shumi, about sort of being on the cusp. Because often those creative industries want to be in places that are, you know, warehouses are inherently flexible. Often in parts of town, there might be slow, lower rent. 
in that cast might yeah, help to foster a kind of community. It's quite exciting, and then inevitably might might move mm -hmm. on. And it's it's tricky that because we don't want sort of heritage-led gentrification to sort of follow automatically. But in London, I know it's. I mean, you probably know about all this, but the, the mayor's team are looking at you know creative enterprise zones and looking at ways that actually policy can foster those kinds of activities in certain places. So there are a few. And it's quite innovative way of thinking about how we can actually build in, not to over-regulate over the activity itself, but to at least give a bit of breathing space to an activity, really important cultural activities in a place so that there'll be lower rents and, and sort of policies that are favourable to that kind of activity continuing. So that's a, that's a positive. positive yeah, I mean, just to end on perhaps the King's Cross development site, it's... it's um, Look, it is, it, it is slightly difficult where it's very, very obvious that a prestigious art college has been brought onto site to add a certain level of kudos or gloss to the rest of the development and therefore to attract other um, tenants. Um, having said that, it's not an entirely unproductive relationship. The students get a really close, um, close level observation as to the forces of what makes a city. And I think, as has been said by everyone on the panel at some point or another, there aren't really any comfortable answers, but I think that's testament to your questions and to the subject of the panel. So if you wouldn't mind thanking the three guests that we have. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.